I always, for some reason, get him and Christian Slater mixed up, and I don't know why. They look nothing alike. A time period, though. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, he made Gattaca, and Christian Slater made Hard Rain, so, you know, pretty much the same guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not something like with Superman, where it's right. like, well, you all are fucking stupid. Just because he has the red cape on doesn't mean he doesn't look like some asshole who works at a fucking newspaper. He might as well wear a handlebar mustache like Clark <laughs> Kent, and just like, hello there, I'm about the news, I'll bury you underground. I'd love to see Daniel Plainview as Superman. I think it'd be great. It would make sense with why he uh, he snapped Zod's neck like that. <laughs> he he just he just channeled the butcher from Gangs of New York. Well, we're just yeah. we're just going through the gamut of Daniel Day Lewis characters here. Yep. Eventually, we're gonna end up at Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Oh no no! Oh my god. <laughs> Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we continue our February favorite series by looking at Toussaint's favorite film, which is the 1997 science fiction drama, Gattaca. Attica! Attica! If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back into Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with the usual two other guys, Nick Cheney and Toussaint Egan. Hi. Hi. And on this episode, we will be uh, moving on into our second film of our February favorites, and that is Toussaint's. I don't even know if it's necessarily your favorite film of all time, but it is the film that I, I think you always come back to as a film you resonate with very much in terms of your love of film, and that is the 1997 film, Gattaca. Yeah, I think that this is, if not one of my favorites, if not my, my favorite film for a lot of reasons that I'm going to go into. Okay, yeah. awesome. Are you sure you want to do this? You know you're going to lose. of events. Jerome Morrow, navigator first class, is about to embark on a one-year manned mission to Titan, 14th moon of Saturn. A highly prestigious assignment, although for Jerome, selection was virtually guaranteed at birth. He's blessed with all the gifts required for such an undertaking, a genetic quotient second to none. No, there is truly nothing remarkable about the progress of Jerome Morrow. Except that I am not Jerome Morrow. 
We can't stay here. Idiots, I have to deal with you. If you think I killed the mission director. What makes him think that? It found my eyelash. Where? In the corridor. Ah, oh, well, it could be worse. You could have found it in your eye. It got my picture plastered up all over the place. I can't turn around without seeing my own face. They'll recognize me. They won't recognize me. They'll recognize me. I don't recognize you. They won't marry the eyelash to you. They won't believe that one of their elite could have suckered them all this time. No, 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 no. We change nothing. We do as we planned. You're Jerome Morrow. Navigator first class. I'm not Jerome Morrow. I'm a murder suspect. But what are you doing? What are you doing? That's more than a day's work. Wait. Can't stay here. Stop that! Oh, fine. Fine. You leave if you want. No, but you're not taking that stuff. That stuff is mine! I could have rented myself out to somebody with a spine. If I'd known you were gonna go belly up on me at the last fucking gasp. You can't quit on me now. I've put too much into this. What do you want me to do? Wheel in there and finish the job myself. Eugene, they are going to find me. You still don't understand, do you? When they look at you, they don't see you anymore. They only see me. It was the last time we swam together and out into the open sea. Like always, knowing each stroke to the horizon was one we'd have to make back to the shore. But something was very different about that day. Every time Anton tried to pull away, he found me right beside him. It was the one moment in our lives that my brother was not as strong as he believed, and I was not as weak. It was the moment that made everything else possible. So, just like we did last week with Magnolia, we'll let Toussaint take the floor and explain to the listening audience about his love for Gattaca and really what Gattaca is about, both just as a film and also to him. So, take it away, Toussaint. It's very, it's, it's very difficult for me to summarize easily like what Gattaca means to me because split across like the entire web of all my interests, like the Venn diagram of the things that I care about. Like Gattaca sits at the center, like every single thing that I love about films, about science fiction, about architecture, about big ideas, about science, about whatever, like all things, all roads lead to Gattaca in a lot of ways. Like the film for me is, is inextricable from the very heart and soul of all of my aesthetic interests. And that's what makes it so hard for me to, compartmentalize it but i found a way to do that in that i want to talk about the film from an aesthetic level from a thematic level and as a personal level as it relates to me just going into like some some personal like background stuff right like when i was a kid like the first book that i ever read was this hardcover book um called the national geographics guide to our universe by roy a gallant and it had artwork from people as far as sid mead or even um uh, Norman Rockwell, even like what it would be like to like live in the future and stuff like that. And that had an indelible part in crafting my young imagination. Like those guys and the writer Ray Bradbury were pretty much the architects of my imagination. Like watching cartoons like Batman, the animated series, like made me imagine what the city of the future would look like. And 
for the longest time, like for most of my 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 child and adolescent life, I was chasing after the idea of what that world would look like because I couldn't I couldn't walk through the streets of Gotham and look up at brutalistic like skyscrapers like being serpentined with police blimps. I couldn't live in the the perpetual sapia tone of an eternal summer in some futuristic like like field. I I, I couldn't like see that. But with Gattaca, it felt like that entire world was made real. It was the first time I saw that world that I had yearned for my entire life when I was in high school. And I was like, I felt like I was at the, the peripheral edge of this bubble world of idyllic, like science fiction, like wonder. It's it, the, what Gattaca is to me is what Tom, Tomorrowland tried to be and could not be for some reason. Like Gattaca represents that to me. But at the same time, like it also serves a dualistic role in its thematic sense of that it it represents this world that is so beautiful and yet is marred by being an almost hellish place to live in. Like it's 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 hard it's hard for me to 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 try and unpack this easily just because like I feel like even though Gattaca Gattaca, Gattaca takes place in a not so future not so far futuristic world where the entirety of society is guided by a eugenic ideal and eugenics means guided like like generational programming basically like we take genes from our fathers and our mothers instead of like combining them through through the random like like centrifuge of copulation and conception we now have them completely designed by people in order to bring out the very best in them supposedly that's what it's supposed to be but and what's horrifying finds me about this is like even though it's placed in such a speculative, like far off, not so distant future, I feel like our world and this future, if not the aesthetics, but at least the the substance of that, is growing closer every single day. Like I've read books like Margaret Atwood's Orcs and Crake. I've I, I've 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 read through the headlines, sifted through through the through the the silt of information about Chinese eugenicists and British. Like scientists, this is recent. This is as as of this year that have been given like the 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 freedom to be able to like tamper or or mess with the 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 human gene in order to try and like solve like illnesses before before they happen. And that's that's great in in one way. But at what point do you stop? And this film, I feel like, excellently summarizes all of that with two quotes. And I'm going to read those quotes right now. And one of them is from. The book Ecclesiastes, which if you don't know, is probably one of the most controversial and one of the most melancholy and almost fatalistic books of the Bible, which is basically this guy who's kind of like marring like what it means to live in an existence of meaningless, right? It's consider God's handiwork who can straighten what he hath made crooked. And when I think of crooked, I think of the the, the famous model of Watson Crick of, of the DNA of the DNA strand. Who can straighten what he hath made crooked? And the second title that, that comes up is from a guy named Willie, Willard Gallen, who is actually like the founder of one of the, one of the leading like uh, bioethics like research institutes in the United States. He said this in 2004, and it's like I not only think that we we will tamper with Mother Nature, I think that Mother wants us to. And the dichotomy between those two stratifications is highlighted in this film itself, and. It's it's it, it's crazy because it illustrates the, the the divide between knowledge and wisdom in the ability of 
the human instinct to heal and improve upon the human condition. Like if we could stop cancer, if we could if we could be the people to create the first generation of human beings, no matter where they live, whether they live in the United States, whether they live in Asia, whether they live in South America, anywhere, if we could stop the cancer the 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 the, the impetus of cancer, would we do it? Could we do it? And after that, how far do we go after that? How what, what, what would we do? And there's another quote that I feel like is is very important to this because it's in, in 2004, like the theoretical physicist and bioeugenic advocate Freeman Dyson once said, "In the future, a new generation of artists will write genomes with the same fluency that Blake and Byron wrote verses." Now, when you hear that, that sounds beautiful. It sounds euphoric. It sounds awesome, right? A new generation of artists writing genomes with the same fluency that Blake and Byron wrote verses. But what happens if you don't fit into the stanza? What happens if you are one errant note in a sea of cadence and harmony? What if from the very beginning of your life you feared that you did not belong? And what if... That fear was confirmed as scientific fact. What if, what if you were? I mean, if you want to go go back even further on this strand? What if you were Jewish, born during the Holocaust? Exactly. What if what if that Whoa. was what if that was the entirety of existence of human existence for you? What if you felt like you never belong? Mm -hmm. And this finally like moves into the personal for me, which is something that I've I. I don't usually talk about, but it's something that I feel like I have to talk about in, in deference to what this film means to me. Like, I, I am of mixed race. My mom is, is half black, but she's fair skin. You wouldn't know that by looking at her. My dad is black. And from the very time that I was little, I felt like I had to adhere or perform to this script, this schema. I didn't even know the word schema back then. I had to learn it in college of what people had to expect from me. I was either too too black for the white kids or too white for the blacks, and I felt like I had to be stratified into one mold of what I had to be. And I always resisted that because I just wanted to be myself. I just wanted to go outside and and watch Power Rangers and play Legos and and talk about weird shit and just like I was I was very effusive and and very creative and very loud as a kid. And another thing like about me when I was younger is that like. I had incredible difficulty communicating. I, I couldn't – I could see things and I could feel things, but I wasn't able to communicate that thoroughly to people. So that was just insult to injury. It's like not only is this, this mixed-race kid who doesn't really fit in anywhere, but also he doesn't know how to communicate. And so people just cast me off as though I was stupid. And that really powerfully informed my, my, my formative years. And it kind of like was one of the, the, the compelling things that pushed me into being such a voracious reader, of being such a voracious consumer of media from all these different corners because I was just searching for the words and the images and the reference to be able to build the parameters of my own self-identity because I couldn't fit into the, into the parameter of self-identity as other people had given me. So I was trying to build my own and trying to build the parameters of the world that was around me and trying to build the bridge – of me and my place in that world. And that followed me like ever since like I, I, I got to like high school and in a biology class I saw this film. And in more ways than one, like I felt 
a kindred force in that film of not only connecting me through the aesthetic, through the thematic, but also in the personal of seeing this person who existed as an outsider. Like you said before, Nick, that WizKid Donnie Smith was your corollary in, in, in uh, Magnolia. Vincent Anton Freeman, more than any character, I think, even though we are of different skin color, even though we are of different worlds, like I see a kindred spirit in myself in that guy. He is my corollary. And even though like we we pivot in, in very different directions of how we chose to reconcile with our own differences in the world, like as I did, like I chose to double down and not take any shit from anybody and choose to simply be myself unapologetically in the wholeness of who I am. Vincent Anton, in order to chase his dream, he had to repress himself. He had to not only repress, but also adopt the persona of another person. He had to take their life. Dude cut his legs off, man. I mean, the dude, shit. The dude did not believe in half <laughs> measures. There were no half measures for him. He cut off his legs. He took the identity of another man in order to live his own life. And even though I cannot, I, I, I cannot agree with that, I understand where he's coming from. And it, it 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 does nothing but 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 enrapture me to see him go after his dream in the same way that I went after mine. Like my opinion personally about this film is that for the entirety of of, of the film, the, the the only thing that I wish like was more explicated on was the fact that he had a heart condition. Like I wanted to see him double over. I wanted to see him lose composure if only for a moment because i felt like that would have brought me even closer to him because i feel like well he does doesn't mm-hmm. he after the exercise scene? yeah when he's yeah. In there yeah but like outside barely, outside of that like just wanted to make sure yeah um but beside that like personally i think that the ending ending scene of this film is absolutely beautiful and so is his his ending speech but and, I, and i'll return to that but i feel like personally like he could have died on that flight he could have died on that flight on, on liftoff, and he still would have won. And I think we don't even know if he necessarily did or didn't. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And I feel like that um, that is that is that is what makes all the difference. Like he could have he could have died either I way, and he I won. Mean, I mean, I feel the film is very for me, like my own mm-hmm. personal interpretation, that it is very fatalistic. Like yeah. I think what's what's inspiring and yet also gut wrenching about mm-hmm. it is that he completes his one goal in life, the thing that's going to complete him, so to speak. Yeah. And yet to get to that place, he might have very well killed himself to do it, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But he lived in service of, of furthering the, of furthering himself into closing the gap between him and that goal. And that, that's what fucking matters. So yeah, yeah. that is my, that is my opening my, arguments. That's my opening argument. <laughs> yeah. We also see the, the great scene at the end where he, the same sort of doctor or whatever you want to call him who always does the exam to see if he actually is who he is. Mm -hmm. We see that he finally is, you know, almost like outed of being a non-perfect person. And pretty much it's that person saying, and I, 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 I dig what you're doing. Why don't you go ahead and get on the and, show? And I love and I love what he said. Like specifically, is like have a, and he tried to tell him at the beginning. He's like, "Have I ever told you about my son?" And I'm just like, "Let me tell you about him some other time." And he's just like, "My son really looks up to you. He he eventually one day wants to apply for here, but a, but unfortunately, he's not all that he was promised to be. That even in this world, like we see that even with um with um what's her name, 
uh, Uma Thurman's character, mm-hmm. like she has a heart condition. She's constructed it's much the same. And even then in this supposed utopian society, like there's room for error. There's room for acceptable error in, in cer- certain things like what is what amounts to perfection that even um, um, uh, what, what's the, the name of the guy who um, Vincent Anton's like identity takes from Jerome Morrow, Jerome Morrow, even Jerome Morrow, who's supposed to have the heart of an ox. He can pretty much fucking live forever. Like even he is flawed in his own way. He is irrevocably human. Like it doesn't matter. There is no gene for the human spirit. And when when the guy at the end is just like, you know, my son really looks up to you. He's not everything that he was promised to be. But who knows what he could become? Who knows what he could become? That was fucking beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I think this film is it's interesting, too, because the first time I saw this was also in high school yeah. in, in, in an English class mm-hmm. uh, my sophomore year. And I feel like I see this film completely differently now than yeah. I did then, which is, would, oh, why are we watching this film in an English class? Uh, <laughs> but... I, I can see why now. Um, I can see why you can pretty much watch this. In- you watched it in an English class? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I watched it in biology. I was going to say, as, as did I. Yeah. But I, I feel like you could almost watch this in most of, of not most, but a lot of different classes because mm-hmm. they could have lessons along a lot of different lines, whether it be... Social sciences, philosophy, yeah. um, dramatic arcs, yeah. biology. Yeah. So... Uh, I feel like this film, uh, for me, just like I feel about Magnolia, was not a perfect film for me because it's not a film that I genuinely love or anything like that. But I agree it's not perfect. Um, I feel like what this film is, is going for is something that is just great and also, too, it really pulls no punches with it. Like It's not like a film that's about an alternate universe that is... is you know, big on genetics. I'm thinking of the the film that Jeff Bridges tried to do forever called The Giver. The Giver. I read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard the books actually really. Yeah, good I was say, the book is like a classic. And yeah. the yeah. film, and I've read that. It was not great, even though it wasn't horrible. But it was only got made because it was inspired by the very properties that are not as nuanced. Like, like I'm sorry, but like Hunger Games. Yeah. Or like just these. It's like, oh, it's got a dystopian feel. Allegiant or something like that. Yeah. that but film, but yeah. Gattaca is a film that is, is not trying to be something more than it is. Like mm-hmm. it is trying to be a film that is about this character who is who is going against the current, like struggling, like in a world that he is not human and he is looked down upon as a a failure of a person, even though he's just a regular person. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that kind of like you guys are, are, are alluding to a little bit that he's not like a true protagonist necessarily in the sense of the word, mm-hmm. that even though he does all these things that in terms of like following your dreams and, and overcoming problems, like he does things that are that, that make him not him. Like he is no longer, himself as a person he's becoming somebody who can fake being a perfect person so he's like a more favorable talented mr ripley yeah yeah i I, I just think he's a very interesting and just bizarre character because he's not just a in one sense of the word like someone who's fighting for something and fighting for their rights and everything like that like he wants to accomplish this one simple goal of of going to outer space and I think that's also a funny thing, too, is mm-hmm. that a lot of people's life goals, whether they be perfect or not perfect, is leaving this awful planet that they live in now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I, I just find it fascinating that he is a character who is a an imperfect character in 
the the opposite sense of of him as a, as a person as a character constructed in a, a narrative film. He is not a a perfect person, and he doesn't have this perfect answer to everything. He's hiding behind all of these different things so he can accomplish his one goal, which is a very interesting thing to say about. Um, about the world. And even though this is an alternate universe, I think like you were saying, Tucson, this has a lot to say about, about being, the, the world, about where we're going, about that being an outlier, being like the, the, the entire, like, like in liter- the literal sense of being an outlier, but also like with the advancement of technology and our relationship to it and how it informs our social existence. Like, yeah. And another thing I'll say about this film is I have a lot more thoughts, but but the one thing I definitely wanted to mention is that uh, I guess it was it was something that I didn't necessarily forget about, but that I I I, I feel like every time I see this film, I, I forget how impactful they, this part of the film is for me, and that is like the incredibly hard thing it must be to lock yourself in an incinerator and wait for fire to burn you to death. Like the idea that Jude Law's character wanted to cease to exist so much that he locked himself in a, an oven for the most part, Mm. switched the trigger and had to wait for it to start for him to be burned to death. Mm. Like the, the idea of that in, in a world where I'm sure finding a way to commit suicide in a much more graceful way. He, he is burning his body into ashes in a, a, what is supposed and to be. He doesn't a, scream. Well, yeah, but yeah. It, it, he's burning his perfect body and completely just destroying it and having it burned down to ash. And just the, and the like the, the, the fortitude has to take to burn yourself to death is and the like symbolism almost, almost almost incomprehensible to me. Like, like there is literally almost any other way to die. I would probably pick than to lock myself in a room, light a match and say, well, eventually I'll be dead. Yeah. Like, it's just like every time it gets to me because the image of just panning away of the shot of the fire burning his body to, to death is just unbelievable that, that, that that even could happen. And for a character that we, we know, honestly very little about uh, mm-hmm. other than the the couple things we know about him but we know he's obviously somewhat of a tortured soul after but i mean he he did this to himself he decided he wanted to die and he he commits the act but it's just it's just something that it's just i'm in awe of of somebody wanting to die so badly and torture themselves so badly that they decide to burn themselves his, to death his body for him really was a prison that was even before he lost the use of his legs and, and mobility because it was a prison of perfection like jerome morrow was never meant to be one one step down from the podium and he shows like uh Vincent, his his silver medal, and I'm talking about the the symbolism of that scene of him burning himself because in, and I'm not trying trying to romanticize his suicide in any way, but like in in a way it kind of like set him free from the prison of his own perfection. Right. Well, and he's also wearing the silver medal. He's, he's wearing the silver medal does, and and yeah. reflecting the light. It turns gold. So that's. It's 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 pretty audacious uh, symbolism that I'm not sure if I can readily like advocate in hindsight, but uh, it is very beautiful, I think, and very provocative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So my turn. Uh, well, I uh, I genuinely love this movie. I uh, it's in one of my, it's in a long, long list of one of my all time favorite movies. Uh, I, I have to say, I saw this when I was for the first time in a biology class <laughs> yeah. in high school, and I actually, my personal opinion, I think that is a bad thing. Like I think it does a disservice to it. Not that people can't connect to it when they watch it in high school. That's... That it has to be set in such a dry and drab <laughs> environment of, yes, of sterility. Because, exactly, because the movie itself is operating in a very clinical way uh, that when you marriage that with, you know, homework and, like, what t- you know, m- take every mention of genes and write out every time Jerome says something or I don't yeah. know, whatever. Like, this is not the movie to kind of pick apart in biology classes, <laughs> in my opinion, even if it's certainly thematically appropriate. Uh, yeah. It just does it a disservice. Yeah. Um, but when I caught up with it uh, again uh, outside of that environment, I absolutely loved it. And I'm not going to say that Jerome Morrow is like a stand-in for me like mm-hmm. you were saying. However, I do think a personal note of what draws me to the story of uh, not Jerome, but to Vincent uh, Freeman, which, Oh, what a last name. Oh, what a last name. (laughs) Um, is that I am a person who has, I would say, I mentioned it in the Magnolia episode. So I'm just going to mention it again, but, um, I was born with a syndrome that's been passed through generations of the males on my father's side, mm-hmm. and it's getting worse with every generation. generation. I, I have the you know the the worst iteration of it so far, and it's uh, it's gotten worse each time. And so it, it's it brings to mind my own thoughts and feelings about how I would feel about passing it on, and uh, if. If I had the possibility or the capability of somehow negating it, uh, would I do that? Yeah. Because it, you know, it's a it's a very tough question to answer because it seems like it's an easy answer as far as like, well, yeah, if you just could just delete that gene, then why wouldn't you? But what because, are you deleting alongside it? Exactly, and like I know for a fact that I wouldn't probably be on this podcast or if if I didn't have this syndrome. And I know that sounds weird, but like every part of you is what makes you who you are and it's what leads you to where you go it's the same reason why you don't hide your tracheotomy scar because it's what brought you to this point yes yeah. and and even just that corollary of like having a when i had the trach and i walked around and you know that's a thing that just like in this world of gattaca like you know they have racism down to a systemic right you know, a, uh, a, a systemic I, assignment like yes. that's so I don't. I don't even know how to wrap my head around that. And and I'm sorry, sorry to like like com- capitulate out of that. But like another form of 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 ingrained. This, this film is so fucking profound, and it, I don't even know if it knows that because like it's talking about institutional prejudice on so many different strata outside of just race and and gender and anything like that. Like when when Vincent Anton is a child and he's trying to go to the fucking like uh uh. Just go to the fucking play school, and they won't let him in. Why? Because of genetically predisposed conditions. The same type of genetically predisposed conditions that would bar people, like, until recently, from being able to get insurance before being able to get affordable health care. It's fucking... It's fucking mind-blowing, and, and especially in, in this universe, that's why I'm talking about it being so beautiful and yet such a, a hellscape. A living hell to live in is that this is a universe where a predisposed, like ad- adversarial, like genetic condition is the way in which you were born. 
the way in which like human beings have been born since time immemorial that racks my mind it is such a fucking nightmare yeah. um well it, another thing though is too is that a, a lot of the things that happen in this film aren't necessarily just in this universe like there are there things that we've seen throughout time i mean just look at um look at forrest gump who's mm-hmm. based on his test score not allowed to be in the school and his yeah. mother has to basically spend a pro- night spend a night with a man so yeah. he, he can go there and that's obviously a different case but yeah i think feel like you watch forrest gump be like oh yeah because he's stupid so you know whatever it kind of goes there but it's this like it's the same thing like it's it's a a kid who who is four years old or five years old who hasn't done anything whether it be go to school or learn about society or learn about abcs or anything like that how the fuck are they supposed to decide their worldview or or their 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 entire future at the age of four let alone fucking 16 or something like that but that's the interesting thing about what we're talking about now about gattaca is that these decisions have already been made based on based on but it's it's not to me at least it's not so ridiculous as it feels like when you're watching this film like it's just because it's a step further it's still the same kind of things that somewhat happen now but they just ultimately been decided on factors that aren't even visible now like you don't even and that's terrifying yeah yeah but i also feel like it's not necessarily like i feel like it would be right in with american culture to do that sort of sort of uh Profiling. <laughs> well, yeah. we already, I mean, you can already today, I've never actually had my personal syndrome mm-hmm. confirmed, but I can take the test that will give me on a sheet of paper, like the confirmation that I've never wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, but because you can do that, you can also now do that. I mean, it's not quite to the extent of what happened in this movie, although we're pretty much heading there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can pretty much do that as far as get a full genetic layout of, I, I think, can't you, of like like infants, even, not infants, but like even like babies who haven't been born. You can start doing certain tests that will already tell you if they have the That's the part of the, hu- the human ast- genome project. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and you can, if you if you have your eggs taken out, if you have your semen taken out, you can have certain things excluded from that, and you can have diseases or chances of having certain things taken out of like like boy, if that's where we are now, where are we going to be in fifteen years? Right, thirty years from now, like. I don't know where we'll be if when we're in our our fifties or so. But, like, I think that we might look back on this one episode and we might, like, cringe with horror or we'll, or we'll either sigh with relief. And I hope it's the latter and not the former. Well, we're saying – I will say one thing, which is that we're commenting on how horrific some of the parts of Gattaca is as far as, like, like the like, – like he says, we have racing them down to a science and mm-hmm. – that kind of thing, and yet they can be lined up against a wall outside of a club, and they can't fucking resist by this this fucking. And, and I'm just gonna recapitulate off of that and like go back to that again. It's just like basically being held up by these guys, and it, and it goes back to the whole like retro throwback like space age aesthetic of basically calling these guys. Um, the Hoovers or the the J Edgars, which at first I thought was very grating, but like I've read some stuff about like the FBI and J Edgar Hoover and he's he's a horrible fucking monster of a man who happened to make a 
uh, an agency that pretty much stands one of the cornerstones of American justice as it is now and pretty much like blackmailed uh, an American president into not like deceiting him from his office, e- even though people will contest that. Like, Yeah, uh, I think J. Edgar Hoover, what he stood for was – You'll never get rid of me because I've got dirt on everybody. That's so. exactly what it is, yeah. and it's 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 fucking baffling how like in this universe his legacy can be 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 carried on in such a way that his name now becomes shorthand for these people who are pretty much the the standard bearers, the 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 guardians on the wall, so to speak, who have to like look over. And basically performed the same role that J. Edgar was trying to do with the FBI when it first started out, which was maintaining the status quo no matter what that status quo is, no matter if it's right or wrong. And and the idea that these 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 uh, what, what, what the, these invalids, so to speak, invalid, an invalid human being, an illegal human being, the the way that people use this kind of like terminology and, 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 and semiotics to like communicate their contempt, their, 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 their systematic contempt of another human being, the way that they can be lined up and checked for their, 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 their ID through their DNA and they can't do anything to resist is nothing short of dystopian. And that kind of like goes to the heart of like the idea of a utopia is that like personally I think that utopias are typified over the fact that at their heart, at their center, at their at their creamy center, there is a dystopia. And it goes back to this one quote from this game Bioshock, which is, everybody wants to come to Rapture and be captains of industry, but they all forget that somebody's got to clean the toilets. So, um, Yeah, and I think one thing we're commenting on is, like, the horrificness of this entire thing. Like, you're, you know, yeah. you're saying dystopian and whatnot. And yet what makes this movie effective for me is that it's as, I would say, rational as it is irrational. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes sense on a primal base level uh, that, like, yeah, if you if you have a heart condition, why would the government or whatever corporation be liable for sending you to space? You know, like it's little or things- like that with NASA, where like before when they had a yeah. space program, they wouldn't let certain people that had like a certain criteria, like they had to have like a, a healthy heart to be able to do that. Like sure. I understand that in the case of not only just liability, but also the safety of 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 that human being, so that they don't die because they don't want that to ever happen again. It's already happened too many times. Right. Um, but this is entirely different level. This is, this is, yeah, this is prejudice. But it, but it's different. Uh, it's, it's a it's, different level. But it depends where you're looking. Like for example, uh, Blair Underwood's I would say scene is also a great indication on why this is so alluring as a as a viable option for uh you know just living. Like when he says like you know the, the parents kind of almost are hesitant at first to go along with it because at first they're like, well, we just want to get rid of like the bad things, quote-unquote, like the alcoholism or whatever. You want this uh, child to be the be be perfect when he comes out. And it's just like there's already enough imperfection written to us anyway. It's like just remember, it's like he will be the very – he will be the product <laughs> of both of you, just the very best of you. Right, and I like – that's actually that's that's what you hope for when you have a child. Like there, you know, that doesn't come from I would say like a Hitler rationale as far as like you know like it, it, it's just it's, perfection. But the germ of this idea 
it just gets sprouted into something that it shouldn't be used for. And, and that's that's what I think is so effective about how this movie portrays it, is that from the bottom, it, it seems like one of the best advancements in you know human technology and whatnot and you can understand why it got made in the first place because if if you if you had this image of like what you were saying like the lineups and whatnot you know like if, that, if that's all this was used for then no it, it, it would never get commissioned because there's no way to sell that to people like why would they openly you know uh sign up for something like like that but it's kind of like the it's the downfall of, of human hubris to uh i would say you know uh sign up for an idea that they don't realize is going to be the very thing that they thought that they were going to avoid, which is, you know, this, uh, that this perfect being and whatnot. Anyway. Well, if something like this <clears throat> got rolling, I mean, what, what, what really is there to stop it? Like, like that's the thing. Like if, if something like this started, there's really, unfortunately no going back. Like there's no, there's no canceling the program because at some point the perfect people are going to, outnumber outsmart i mean like they're probably the only people who could be elected to be a president or they're probably mm-hmm. the only people who could be in uh the senate or in government or, or something like that valid president <laughs> so how would you ever change the rules if this these people who have now been told and i i don't mean to make another reference yeah. to the nazis but yeah. have now been told um, I know you don't necessarily agree with me, but you are, you are, you are one, of, one of the people who are okay. So I'm not going to kill you, yeah. but, um, as long as you turn a blind eye to these fucking people, yeah. I think it'll be all good. These people who imperfection is writ all the way down to their genes. Like, and, and, and there's and really quickly, if yeah. I can throw one more go thing ahead. out there yeah. before I forget about it. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like it's very interesting for me to go back to, uh, a film that I didn't think I would come up on this episode at all, but here it is, which is Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. uh, which involves Alan Arkin. <laughs> yes, he's in both. Like, look at <laughs> look at this ties together even without what I was going to bring Just up. Just call me IMDb. <laughs> we have Paul Dano, who has made a a vow of silence in that film <laughs> until he reaches his ultimate goal, and he's told he cannot accomplish his goal because of a physical problem that he has that he did not decide on which is for the most part i didn't even know he had right that's the other thing it's like just like dna testing it only illuminates things that people can't know unless they're made privy to but i i think in and that is something that is not much different from what is happening on the surface uh which is the one thing that is separating um, separating Vincent from his goal, which is he has this problem that people do not allow to happen. And here in the real world, even though it's a film, there's there's a real thing of he is colorblind, mm-hmm. so you are not allowed to fly, and we've made this decision. And no matter what you do, unless you get your fucking eyes fixed, which you're not going to, mm-hmm. you're not ever going to be able to fly, and sucks to suck. Which it's unfortunately just how the world is, but I think it's funny how pretty much already we like dismiss things like that. And even like, I feel like Tucson, you, you just somewhat did it right now. Like, well, of course, like bad things have happened. So why would we let someone with a heart mm-hmm. defect go into space? Like that could be someone's entire life as they want to go into space. And then yeah. they're told when they're 40 years old, well, your father had a heart attack when he was 50. So you're not going to space. Like what the fuck? Like, like, that's it's, you've just taken that person's entire life and just been like, well, you know what? Why don't you just go and drink yourself to death? It's, because it's, it's, it's all over. Like it's 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 hard to 
try to it's it's hard to try and reconcile those two because yeah it's like at one point you're talking about somebody's dream another point you're talking about like rules that were put in place by society either to work to the benefit of these people and to the safety of these people but it's 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 kind of this this uneasy tension where like society has to create rules in order to presumably allow the greatest amount of people to be able to succeed and be able to do what they do and for the people who aren't able to do it to allow them the agency to still live and have a fulfilling life but in some ways inadvertently bureaucracy um often bites itself in the ass and can can uh make other people who want to like pursue their goals and their dreams like invalid in 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 that pursuit can I ask a question to you guys? Sure. This is going in a little bit different direction than what we've been talking so far. Yeah. Are any of the quote-unquote perfect people in this film happy to you? Because I don't think any of them are. In fact, they all look miserable. <laughs> they are... Um, they're comfortable. Are they, though? I don't, I, I don't get that they're, vibe. They're, they're comfortable in that they are complacent. But even I, then, even then, I don't even even believe that. No, because they, you're right. They don't seem happy. They seem like they're they're really kind of shouldering a a societally like endowed mantle. If you don't have problems, what do you have to look forward to and overcome? Like mm. people need to have times when they fall so they can pick themselves up and either become a better person or where they can learn from their mistakes. And if you are someone who can't make mistakes because of your genetic predisposition, like how are you going to learn about being a better person? Like that's the thing that's interesting about what this mm -hmm. film is trying to say is if you make a perfect human, what, what are they going to learn in their life? If they're told from the time they were born, well, you're a perfect person. What so is, you what don't have perfect? anything to do. What well, I, I guess yeah, that's exactly, what, yeah. like, like if you are genetically predisposed to be a perfect human being, mm -hmm. like what, what do you have to overcome in your life and what do you have to learn? You don't have to do anything. You just have to be apparently. No, for sure. I, I'm with you, Alex, as far as like, no, I, I've, I've always, I would say, caught on to that idea that these perfect people are the ones who are kind of, I would say, like like manic depressive internally and you know and um if genetics in this world is currency you know it's money can't buy happiness you know and that's if that's what you have it doesn't mean that you somehow are actually well off it just means that people think you are which can only lead to an even more depressive mind so no i, I mean you can they're just as marginalized in some ways at least psychologically as somebody like you know the imperfect because they are told in the same way that they tell the imper imperfects that you are this, therefore you can do this or that. And while, yes, they have more options, that doesn't necessarily – nobody likes being told what or who they are. Everybody would prefer that we, we get to decide our own it's, destiny, so to speak. It's, well, it's two different kinds of birds that are in two different cages, and one is smaller and conscripting, and the other one is bigger and gilded. Yeah. But it's still two birds in, the, in two cages. Another thing is too is and I got the, one stone. <laughs> God, the people who are no bubble gum. Per, the people who are perfect still are um, very much available to prejudices against them. Like they always have to line up to do the fingerprint or the blood test or whatever. Mm -hmm. And even if all of them pass the test, they still have to continuously do that in this 
society that has decided that they are perfect, they still have that questioned at every turn because it's all based on their DNA. Right, and that's the other thing. I think the big thing that this movie tackles besides genetics is mm-hmm. the flip side, which is fate and how none of that matters whatsoever. Uh, like, you know, even to uh, get that down to a systemic, you know, uh, segregation, or so to speak, like, it, it's not accounting for the one thing that uh, ultimately decides what happens in somebody's life, which is fate. I mean, you know, Jerome Morrow can have the perfect body uh, and still be genetically superior to somebody like Vincent Freeman, and yet he, he because of his accident, uh, which was self-inflicted, but still, mm-hmm. it's still fate as far as, like, it, it happened, and he couldn't have planned that that was going to happen when he first started his life, the same way that genes say, this is how your life is going to go. Uh but that, like, that's the flip side of it, is that there's this fatalistic outlook that, like, at the end of the day, none of this matters because what's going to happen will happen, and you can't do anything about it. It doesn't matter what you're predisposed to. Like, science cannot account. And I, I kind of like that, that, that there's this twofold relationship between science and faith, you know. It reminds me of something like Lost, which is literally had an episode called Man of Faith, Man of Science, because it's two main characters were one of each, and how those two things, you can't exist without the other. You you know, just because you get something down to a science, you does not mean that you somehow figured it out. Right. It just means you figured out half the equation. To um, quote another character from another one of my favorite films, because exact science is not an exact science, these things take time. From uh from the prestige and David Bowie's turn as Nikola Tesla, like yep. that I feel like that's perfectly applicable in this in this situation. Yep. Yeah, the prestige is a an interesting comparison, not just from that quote, but of of this uh, film where <clears throat> um, you have the great Danton who's always striving for this this perfection mm-hmm. of perfecting this perfect illusion, which is basically stealing what someone else has already done for the most part. Yeah, and I feel like that's a great parallel to this film, and that film is just a great parallel in the world of magic of when you spend your entire life working towards something and then you ultimately get to the end and find out that it's just been what everyone's been telling you. Like there's no, there's no wizard behind the door. Like it just is what it is. And you're like, Oh, that sucks. Well, yeah. it's, it's like, you can't have magic without having another person in your act. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's but dependent on both. And in yeah. the, the, like there was no scientific, like incredible answer. It, like, it's just a good magic trick. Like it, there is a, reasonable reason behind why it works and i think that kind of goes to what you're saying about this film nick about how looking for a scientific answer to solving in an unsolvable equation like you cannot completely figure out humanity and being a person just by saying you won't have cancer you won't have heart disease or uh, you won't have alcoholism or something like that. Like that doesn't solve all your problems. All it does create is create new problems. Yep, for sure. Um, can I take it into a new direction? Sure. Please. And I want to say uh, something that might be blasphemy to some listeners, but uh, this film for me, and I'm kind of moving it into a more aesthetics direction, uh, is probably my favorite, I would say, depiction of sci-fi noir. In, I... In totally cinema, I, you can have your Blade Runner and you can have your Dark City and other 
films that have done the same thing, and those are certainly good films uh, and have their merit, but this is like, as far as finding the right story to tell uh, in a noir landscape, it's like, I mean, uh, fatalism uh, and this, I would say, a case of mistaken identities. I mean, if, all of that's embedded into a noir framework. If this was a noir film, like a straight noir film, the the name of it would be the man of who was guilty for who he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you you have a dame here, you know, and you have uh, cops investigating a crime and whatnot. And yet, none of that feels like it's only in there because somebody wanted to make a sci-fi noir hybrid. Like, it's not like that it's 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 not the chicken or egg situation it's so clear when i watched this movie that this story is so organic that sci-fi noir i would say the mix between the two are just just organically just works so perfectly that i just eat it up every time and i love also that it it's very Noir, I want to say, like the the aesthetics are very noir as far as we even have a, a chain link fence standing in for Venetian blinds at yeah. one point, and um, and yet it also, I would say, rightfully uh, does it through a sci-fi filter because we don't have black and white photography, mm. but we do have an emphasis on colors and not just colors, but like segregated colors. Like this scene is only based in red, and then we go to the next scene. This, this one's green. Yes, this and, one's yellow. Yes. And it both two for two reasons I love that, which is a it harkens my nostalgic mind back to biology class mm-hmm. when I see the DNA module of like the green ball, the red ball, you know, all strands coming off of uh, one little, yeah, you know, like when they had those little three D models. And B, I just love how perfectly that encapsulate like how no one color stands out from each other even though they should <laughs> like very you know red looks so much different than green and you know yellow and all colors and yet when you line them up like that and you you go from one scene of only red and one scene of only green it's exactly what these characters have done in this dystopian society which is essentially uh, i would say separate people to a degree that makes them actually unremarkable like if you classify human beings down to a science or down to a color as far as thematically tying into like the color aesthetic of this movie it, it just makes everything monotonous and and i think it's actually gorgeous to look at but thematically it's monotonous and i, I think that it's just great as far as how it plays it's effective monotony because it's really it's it's not the film itself that's mon- monotonous but rather it's emulating monotony in this in this universe in this existence that this is the plausible reason that they that this is how they they do their interior decorating and they're not self-aware enough to be able to see it. And like going back to your, your point about like this film being like one of the most effective, like sci-fi noir things. I don't think that's blasphemous at all. It's like, I think that there is definitely there's there, there are more like depictions of noir, effective depictions of noir than there are colors in the rainbow, I think. And like in, in, in colors in the spectrum of, 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 of colors. Um, I, I think that this one is particularly effective. I think that Blade Runner is effective for a very different sense, and maybe one day when we get to a Blade Runner episode, we will uh, we will talk about it. Fun fact: like <laughs> um, Blade Runner and Gattaca were neck and neck for a while for my February favorite, and I had to give it to uh, Gattaca just simply because of the personal relationship that I have to this film. Um, and again, going off of your point about like this being the most effective like 
depiction of a sci-fi noir like aesthetic collaboration collaboration as far as the way they they work together yeah Yeah. like i think that's owed no small part to the the cinematography which is owed to one slawomir idzinskia like Mm. he's he's a guy who has worked with ridley scott with john sales with uh michael winterbottom he's he's done films like proof of life uh, black hawk down king arthur um, Harry Potter and the the Order of the Phoenix, hmm. yeah. So like, yeah, I, I think that his his cinematography is absolutely it is absolutely essential to this film and framing everything and in creating this world. Like the part where um, Vincent Anton goes to Gattaca in order to take the test, and his DNA was the test, and he comes down the spiral staircase that is supposed to symbolize like you know the, the DNA strand and the way that it's framed and, and it has like. Jerome Morrow just kind of like hunched over in this this wheelchair. I was like, at one point, that shot is great. That shot is is beautiful in and of itself. With him coming down, him stopping in the middle and saying like, "I passed," and then it goes to the reverse shot of of Jerome looking down, and you see like, no, it has Vincent looking down, and Jerome's like wheelchair is sitting right at the axis point of like two floorboard like 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 uh, divisions. Like this, this, this triangle that's just like leading to that. And I thought it was so fucking incredible. There are scenes like that every single – there's almost every single scene like speaks to me in like how it was composed. And it was conscious. It was a, it was a conscious, deliberate like point of framing this one thing. And I think it's just fucking incredible. I think it's genius. I think he's, I think he's a great cinematographer. Um, and, and if we're just going to – riff off of like the structural like components of this film and what makes it is like I gotta say that like Michael Nyman's score for Gattaca is one of my all time favorite scores of all time. This was a this was the score that made me stand up and pay attention to movie scores. Just simply because it's it's also bathed in kind of like this retro aesthetic of kind of like the, the – it feels like a golden heyday sort of like violins like core driven like score. Obviously, it's like it has its refrains, it has its 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 movements, it has its crescendos, it has its lulls, and it's just so it's so fucking beautiful that I wish that I wish this this score was on vinyl. I would buy a vinyl player if only to hear every crackle and every pop and every single like strain on these chords. It's just so fucking beautiful. Like I own this. I, I went out of my way to own the CD. The out the, the out of print CD of this score because I love it so damn much. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about it. So yeah, yeah. Gattaca is a, a very interesting film when you just compare the characters involved, and we've gotten so involved in the in the story and and sort of the, this idea behind it. But when when you just talk about the characters too, this is a, a film that I feel like the three main character well, I'll, I'll say this at least. I mean, Uma Thurman's character is kind of hard to really get a great grasp on because she doesn't have a, a huge role in, in the film as, as, as big as I thought she would have been a, a, you know, a main player on the poster and everything. But I feel like the, the interesting relationship between Jude law and, uh, and Ethan, Hawk's characters. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, sorry. almost failed there for a minute. <laughs> I, I always want, I always for some reason get him and Christian Slater mixed up, and I don't know why. They look nothing alike. A time period, though. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, he made Gattaca, and Christian Slater made Hard Rain, so, you know, pretty much the same guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But their characters, I think, are so interesting because they are basically playing the same guy throughout the entire film. Because there's one who's playing a version of that in, in society and the other one who's being himself in a way that he felt like he couldn't. Which is such an interesting thing because I feel like they're obviously playing a reverse of each other. But at the same time, they are, for better or worse, really just now the same person as they have assumed the identity of the same person, even if they're being that identity for a different reason. And it's such an interesting dynamic that of two actors having to play characters who are technically the same person, even if they're that person for different reasons. And it's just very interesting too. When when you talk about the, the, the people in the film that no one ever looks at, like, it's almost like a, like a Batman thing or a Superman. Like, you, you know that's Clark Kent, right? Like yeah. that—that's who that is. Like, but they don't see his face. They don't need his. His face is his greatest disguise. Well, and that's the interesting thing about this film is that no one even ever questions it, and I'm totally on board with it. Like, it's not something like with Superman where it's right. like, well, you all are fucking stupid. Like, just because he has the red cape on doesn't mean he doesn't look like some asshole who works at a fucking newspaper. He might as well wear a handlebar mustache like Clark <laughs> Kent and just like, hello there, I'm about the news. I'll bury you underground. I'd love to see Daniel Plainview as Superman. I think it'd be great. It would make sense with why he uh, he snapped Zod's neck like that. <laughs> He's, he just he just channeled the Butcher from Gangs of New York. Well, we're just yeah, we're just going through the gamut of Daniel Day Lewis characters here. Yep. Eventually, we're gonna end up at Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's no, it's, no, no. Oh my god, <laughs> I I I love this idea that no one ever even dots an eye or never even thinks about that oh yeah that really doesn't look like you even i know they look similar but Mm -hmm. like you can obviously tell by looking at the photo that that's just not him and it's it's just interesting that 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 the actors had to play these two characters who are in such a weird relationship with each other and then that the characters sort of go together like that and in a in a film that really is for me a, a weird relationship drama when it comes to, to the two of them because they have just such a unusual relationship for any film let alone a uh, a film that's about genetics yeah yeah uh one thing that you're touching on that i i also love is yeah the idea that nobody bats an eye when um vincent assumes jerome's identity did i say dot and i I think you said done. Dun- I, bad and I. I. I totally got what you were saying. Yeah, <laughs> dot your eyes and and cross your t's. Yeah, but I, yeah. I think I think I used the wrong term. Go ahead, slash your cues. And how that you know that that does happen, and here it makes perfect sense because one thing, I, one little detail I love and. Uh, um, is that I love that in this world of scientific advancement, uh, there actual technology seems archaic and i i think it's might be a happy accident because it was made in the 90s so. that's a touchstone of of that era of science fiction to begin with because it was really like sort of like the 1940s like between 1960s era where we're going through like the golden age where people are like imagining what will the future look like it's like oh people will be able to fly in cars and you'll have these these giant like backpacks that will let you <laughs> talk to anyone anywhere yeah but also that the, the, <laughs> that's another thing like sci-fi is, is indelibly um like written to the fact of why i even use the transatlantic accent 
Meanwhile, in the future, no, I think use the transatlantic. I think there's childhood trauma or something. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. That. Use the transatlantic accent because you feel like it. Yes. I do. That's exactly why. <laughs> uh, but getting back to cool. a movie that doesn't back have to reality, the transatlantic. Back to reality. Uh, hope there goes gravity. Hope there goes gravity. <laughs> anyway, um, but no. But what I love about the the I would say depiction of like actual computer screens and uh, you know is that it's so analog. I mean, when you see uh what they pass off as like what like their id cards like what after they scan their um you know their their blood test when they get pricked uh yeah. or their fingerprint is it blood test i think yeah when they yeah. when they're getting to work um and what shows up is like this like just like ms dos type screen of mm-hmm. like a barely thrown together like uh sketch of what it like cgi um <laughs> like blueprint of what it would look like to try to like chart a course to another planet and it's just like and, and that's more of like that's, that's both a deliberate choice i think and i think yeah. it's also endemic and endemic of uh, hollywood's uh computer illiteracy in that they try to well they will they, they have to pretty much create like a visual like representation of what it means to interact with a computer but the fact is is that interacting with a computer like how we actually do it is really fucking boring. Well, yeah, but I also think I think it's more of a deliberate choice because what I think it says about the society is that like they gave up on yeah. everything else. Yeah. Like, once they figured out this, like then they just did, did not give a shit about perfecting and like coming up with you know the the invention of like JPEGs and actual high res images, which and it's could have been very useful. <laughs> could, could have in, really helped you find all those yeah. fucking invalids, you dumbass. Yeah, in this situation. Who's perfect now yeah well and like we were talking about earlier though with 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 these these characters like now that you've perfected humanity what is there left to do yes like that's the thing is that they gave up on on technology itself because exactly they perfected humanity so to speak uh so nothing else matters and i just i just love that little detail a i just think it looks great like i kind of love I would say, like, archaic or analog uh, mm-hmm. depiction of technology. It's like, part of the affectation of that time and why it's so – why it resonates not only with me but with many other people who, yeah. like, have grown up and become, like, directors in their own right. Like, Joseph Kaczynski, like, even is, is roped into that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it, even just that little detail of, like, how, like, you know, that's how archaic and what that says about society. It reminds me of uh, Paul Verhoeven's <laughs> – Starship Troopers, because like just as far as like these little moments and like in that movie when they're all on their little uh, very high tech, uh, uh, what do you call it, like screens when they're in the middle of the classrooms, like it's the most illiterate society, and yet they keep saying that they read all the time. Because mm-hmm. then they say, oh, okay, we're gonna read a new book, and then like they just open up their screens and little it's, it's moments like that that I feel like that Gattaca just kind of swing it back to that that. That kind of reminds me of something like what Verhoeven's doing in Starship Troopers, whereas I feel like Gattaca is like almost like very small. It's like it's like when a white person said that they're like one eighth Cherokee Indian or something. Like, <laughs> it's not like that pertinent, but like it might be a small fraction of like satire. Yeah, like, you know what I mean. Like it, it's not trying to make you laugh about it, but it is there and it 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 knows how ridiculous some of this looks. It's taking the piss out of the pretense of perfection. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize to white people who believe that their one-eighth Cherokee heritage is important. <laughs> Damn, we are going all across the board on this episode. Do you talking, really apologize, though? T- 
Do, do you really though? On this episode, I do. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. Do we uh, do we have more discussion this, or do we want to go to final thoughts? I think Ethica? that I could talk about this film for another two hours. But Let's I, do it. I think that for the for the sake of of ending on a high, like I really want to just like <laughs> my my Cherokee Indian comment is that the high? <laughs> no, I I tried to gloss over that. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't I start us off, yeah. and then we'll go to Nick, and then we'll finish with Tucson as he can give the final word on exactly. on Gattaca, as it is his selection for his February favorite. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I feel like I enjoyed this film more this time than the other two times I previously viewed it. As I I, I really enjoyed watching this as a, as a film and it's definitely something I feel like can grow on me even more uh, watching it uh, in the future, especially after our discussion here today about it. It's just a very interesting science fiction film that is one of those films that, that definitely would be something that major audiences wouldn't gr- run to the theater to go see, but it's, it's such a fun film to, to watch after. Like, I feel like, <coughs> It's not the same kind of thing, but I feel like like the the way that this film is made is like early Christopher Nolan, like like something that I just want to watch over and over again, not because it's doing something that is beyond comprehension, but because it is doing something that I'm genuinely interested in seeing over and over and dissecting. Yeah. And and that's what I, I love about this film is that even though it is not a perfect film for me, it is something that I feel like I could watch over and over again and pick up something new every time and be interested every time because it is so different from what a lot of other films are trying to do. Even if you have a good science fiction genetics film, uh, this is doing something that is very much its own, and that's what I really enjoy about Gattaca. So yeah. let's go to Nick. Yeah, I I love this movie. Um, it gets better every time I've watched it, and um, especially since the first time I watched it, I was not that big of a fan <laughs> in biology class. Yeah, fucking biology class. <laughs> fucking high school. hated that class. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but, uh, no, but I, I absolutely love this movie and I, I kind of think we've touched on everything I love about it, which is that I think it's this brilliant mix of really affecting drama, like at the heart of it. Like, even if you take away the sci-fi aspect of it or whatever, it's like, there's, there's nothing more profound than the, the, the will of the human spirit and what it wants to do. I mean, that's pretty much what most movies are about in some way, you know what I mean? And this just gives it a, a, a pretty unique I think spin and uh, mm-hmm. and becomes this wonderful celebration of kind of cinematic history too as far as the way it dabbles in both uh, sci-fi movies of our past even if it's about the future and, and film noir and whatnot and uh, even like I said even some of it part of it even makes me laugh I mean there, there, there are jokes in this movie uh, uh, you know even just Ethan, like, yeah. like uh, when uh, Vincent is going out for his first day and Jerome tells him, like, oh, check the the thing or whatever. And he keeps on checking it and it's like, it always reads as, as it kicks back because it's got so much vodka in it. Yeah. And the one line that he says where, where he's exasperating, he's on the penultimate like like pack. And he's like, there's more vodka in this piss than piss. Yes, yeah, so that... I, I laugh every time. Yeah, that or even his reaction right before the great cutaway to him cutting off his legs, you know, it's like when he's like, I'm not doing it, you know. And, and, and You want to go dancing? <laughs> yeah, that was good too. Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing is that this movie is like, I would say, not taking itself so seriously and yet that's also what makes it all the more effective. It, it just completely encompasses so much of the, the human struggle, I think, and, and does it in such a 
entertaining way. I mean, this is a a murder investigation and a, a sci-fi, you know, spectacle and so many other things. So it can kind of like really distract you from the idea that this story is deceptively simple. And, mm-hmm. and even if it has, I would say the story is deceptively simple. It has extremely complex ideas and whatnot. And that's what I love is that I could watch this when I'm drunk and just enjoy the, you know, the utter like, uh, entertainment value of it, and yet, or I could spend the three, visual spectacle of it. Yeah, or I could spend hours with you guys talking about it because it warrants that as well, and that's uh, that's ultimately why I keep coming back to it. Yeah. Another thing too, we we never hit on, and we we talked a little <laughs> bit about uh, the the interesting part of the film of of how no one ever questions that that's not him in the, in the photo. Yeah, uh, it, I I find it fascinating that the the two brothers never know that it's each other at any point until the very end of the film. Because they never truly like look at each other or stare at each other. That's true. Yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. I guess I'm mm, interesting. Yeah. I, I always, I mean, I guess, I guess I always I, thought I, that it, it could half be played for somewhat shock value for the audience. I always thought How, that at least that his brother knows it's him the whole time. And that's why he keeps, yeah. I thought like yeah. he, he nurtures that, the he nurtures that hope in his, in his mind. Right. I, I think actually you're, you're probably right. I think that. it's confirmation at the end. Yeah. But I think he's privy to what's happening. And that's why every time like Alan Arkin character is coming and at first you think it's just that he's an incompetent cop <laughs> and then, or like a, you know, a renegade, whatever, not right. really whatever. But I think that at the end is you kind of realize when you rewatch it, that it's him kind of deterring the investigation away from actually finding out uh, that it's his brother. Yeah. So he can try to save his brother. There. <laughs> yeah, but but I feel like that's that's an interesting e- even if it, it and I, now that I'm thinking about it more, you are absolutely correct on that. But still, they never like run into each other and have weird conversations or anything like that. And, and they but, they they are supposed to know each other what they they look like, even though they haven't seen each other since they were younger. I think if you see. <laughs> okay. If you see your brother later in life, I'm sure you would know it's them, even if you haven't seen them in a long time. Yeah. Oh, just, for sure. So and that's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I, just, I just find it pretty fascinating. A film that is all about perfection and, and being your perfect self and how people can hide in plain sight. It's the perfection is so apparent that you don't even have to look them in the face. Yeah. yeah. And before I pass it off, I actually just want to since you brought that up, I actually think it is funny that we never once mentioned one of the, I think, crucial components of this entire movie, just because there's so much to talk about, mm-hmm. is the relationship between the two brothers, even if they don't like share scenes together. The the idea, and that's another reason why it resonates with me as someone who has a uh, brother, mm-hmm. um, and like only one brother, so as far as like this relationship is very... And he is, I would say, genetically superior because he got my <laughs> mother's very healthy genes, you know, mm-hmm. and whatnot. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> we're just putting it all out there. <laughs> Um, although my IQ is higher, um, <laughs> but no, but, um, as far as like, I can completely relate to the idea, especially when you come down to like this, the story of genes and your imperfect self and your, your, your perfect self. And that, if you take the sci-fi away from this entire story, that's exactly what I would say siblings feel when their parents have other children is that there's in some ways, even if they're not, and now in this movie, they kind of, they kind of are, especially thematically, but also kind of literally, cause they kind of say it cause he gives, uh, the second brother, his act, the father gives him his real name to the, like the Vincent says, he's finally found a son that's worthy of his name. And, yeah. Well, you mean Anton, right? Yes, Anton, not Vincent. Yeah, and when I love that part in the in the very beginning of the film when she says we're going to name him Anton, let's have that be the middle name. Yeah. Yep. Vincent Anton. Vincent. Yeah. 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 
And it's that idea that, like, I think, you know, it's genetics, uh, the way that this movie explores very sci-fi ideas about genetics, at the heart is exactly what I would say a child experiences when they have siblings, which is that, like, that that, that was your, 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 your possible self. You know, you're standing right next to something you could have been, mm. and is that worth it to be that? And, you know, does... And if your parents are the ultimate approval, just like in this movie society, like, you know, you're the, the government or whatever. The like, big brother or patriarch. Right. Would you trade your genes in to appease uh, the, the gatekeepers of what you can and cannot do? Yeah. And, and that's just a huge thread that, you know, we I could talk all day about. But I just wanted to at least briefly give exactly, man. passing it's, mention it, it, It's it. what this, this film, like, does to people. It yeah. makes them, like, talk about it for a really long time. And that's what I love about it. Yeah, so you should continue then. Okay. Um, just one last one one last thread, just like tying off that whole humor thing. Another one of my favorite. Don't fav- you mean one last strand? One last strand. <laughs> one last strand of the humor of the the <sighs> the, the humor note um, was the whole. There, there's there's two points. I got I, I got to talk. Funny. I got to talk about these. Okay, it's like one of them. They both involve Jerome. Okay, Jerome. Um, actual Jerome or actual Jerome. Okay. Uh, when when. One of the cops like comes by like Jerome's Jerome and Vincent's apartment and like checks <laughs> and he's just like cursing him out and says, "Oh, you fucking flat foot! What's your number? What's your number?" And you and it turns out it's it's uh, it's Hank from uh, from Breaking Bad. It's fucking Hank from Breaking Bad before Breaking Bad, who's also in Starship Troopers. Oh, oh my god! god. <laughs> um, I didn't do that. Just- and and my and my my second favorite like humor scene is when uh, Vincent's brother like is taking Uma Thurman in order to go to Jerome and Vincent's apartment in order to like out him for for who he is like you don't know who he is do you and then Vincent has to call like Jerome in order to like get him to like pose as him I need you be me for the day and he he rolls over he he, he stops drinking he rolls over to the fucking spiral staircase looks up he's like oh fuck and he just flings himself <laughs> on there and he fucking crawls up that bitch like it's fucking like American gladiators <laughs> and he just like stretches his hand up just to push the little button He's like, yes, please come in. <laughs> he just like, he just, he just takes his puppet legs, like like these Rudy Tootie legs. Puppet legs. His fucking Rudy Tootie puppet I, legs. I think those are his real legs. I know, but like, it's it's like a puppet trying to like pose itself and like just cross. To our them. disabled listeners, he, uh, we he, do not share the views. Of that's Tucson's. not what, that's not what I'm trying to say. And he just like that's what you said though. He he slings them over and he's like, yes, yes, please come in. And I'm just like, what the. Fuck? I, um, I like how we've we've gone on this this show to puppet legs now for disabled people. I, so. That's yeah. not what I meant to say. I'm sorry. Oh my god. Okay. Racism down to a science. Oh my <laughs> god. Oh, I, I apologize if I offended anybody by saying that. That was not my intention. Um, Seriously, but, puppet legs. But just to just to wrap this up, um, yeah, uh, Gattaca is. Nothing short of a summation of all my interests and one of my all-time favorite films of all time, if not my favorite film. Um, Andrew Nichol has yet to create a film that I think is as, as consummate as a vision, as as disturbingly predictive, and as as profoundly human in my eyes as this one. And I don't know if he ever will. He suffers from the curse of the debut artist. It's like in in. If if he had to create shitty films after after Gattaca in order for Gattaca to happen, then like I 
I, I gotta say, I, I, I take the bullet for that. I think that's, I think that's fine. I, I can live in that sort of universe. I wrote like one last thing, and I, I wrote it down just to put my thoughts down. And it's just, um, I don't, in principle, give films five out of five stars. I know that we're not doing ratings, but I just had to talk about this. Like, not because I am a snob or don't believe that films don't deserve perfect ratings. On the contrary. But a five-star rating represents to me the height of what a film is capable of achieving, of transforming its audience, of edifying them, and sending them out into the world as someone better, wiser, and more empathetically attuned for that experience. These gratifications are not universal constants and are dependent on individual experiences and predilections. But I can say that with no hint of uncertainty that Gattaca irrevocably changed me as a person for bringing to life fully formed the world that I had envisioned ever since I was a child, a world that two halves of my soul wish to one day see and simultaneously, simultaneously wish to never see. The, the, the former, a world worth striving for, a world worthy of all those who have in it, a world where there is no wheat or chaff, only people working harmoniously to further the end of minimizing our collective suffering and building towards something greater, both collectively and as individuals. Basically, the pursuit of what science fiction is supposed to be, in that it is a genre that is supposed to lift us from the very pit of ourselves into such heights of self-clarity and such self-identity that even the stars themselves look like way stations. Ideas that are just too big to fit between the space of a two-hour film, though for a time we glimpse them peripherally from the corner of our own sight, and but for a precious moment are made real on the surface of a movie screen. So yeah, that's Gattaca to me. That was beautiful, man. Thank you. I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Promise myself I wouldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that was Gattaca, as, uh, as Dusan just said, and a very uh, enjoyable Gattaca! Episode. Gattaca! <laughs> you had to fit that in, didn't you? Easy there, Al. Holy shit. <laughs> She's got a great ass! She's got a great ass! Someday we're going to have to do an episode where we talk about Al Pacino. Like, yeah. like not just... Well, like I don't any, want to. Not just a specific <laughs> movie, but, man, he has so many great one-liners. What's your favorite I, Al Pacino line? It's, you know, like, we just... That is my like favorite Al Pacino. hour of that. I don't even think yeah. I've seen that movie. I just love that line. Which one? The, the line, line from Heat? Yeah, I haven't oh, seen okay. Heat yet. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a grand film. It's yeah. long. Yeah. You got you to gotta plan your day around it. It's like Magnolia. <laughs> Yeah. It is. Yeah. And like our next February favorite. And that's a perfect, great job. <laughs> I, I, I love the relatable material. Way to go, Nick. Yeah. Our final February favorite is my favorite film. Yay. And it, believe it or not, the best of the three films we've got, I'm Just Being a Dick. Uh, come on. It, it, I can say that because it's my favorite film ever, oh. uh, which is the 1995 uh, gangster crime drama, which is Casino by Martin Scorsese. Uh, there are many reasons why this is my favorite film of all time, and I'll get into all of them on episode 52. Because you're a mobster. Yes. Well, I was actually just going to say, and this is something I'll bring up on, on our next episode, is that I feel like you guys have had very personal reasons why you like both Magnolia and Gattaca. And I don't have that many personal reasons why I love Casino, but... That's fine. It really... That's a good thing, considering what Casino is about. I know, I was going to say. <laughs> I just happen to really want to be a mobster someday. <laughs> Bro, low-key, are you on the run? Because we shouldn't even be doing this right now. Look. <laughs> but Casino, to me, uh, is just 
everything I love about film filmmaking and just film in general. And I will give more of my opinions and everyone will give their opinions on the, the Martin Scorsese 1995 classic. I mean, in, in the gangster genre, it's definitely a classic, but yeah. uh, in, in terms of just film, probably not, but it's a, it's a very interesting Same. film that um, definitely goes all the way with uh, what some other gangster films aren't willing to do. So we'll talk about that on uh, next episode. If you have any feelings on either Gattaca or Magnolia or Casino and you wanted to send them on, we would love to hear them at filmtankshow at gmail.com. And if you dislike any of those three movies, we will destroy you. Yeah, we're not really going to mention that probably. So, yeah. But any thoughts on them, really, <laughs> love to hear them. And we'd uh, love to talk about them on uh, the next episode or a future episode. And also, also it's, I just want to point out yeah. that uh, apparently we're all 90s babies. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna say we we all happen to to pick movies from the from the nineties. So Only nineties kids will understand. <laughs> Only nineties kids. Uh, um, so get yes. a <laughs> If you if you would like to uh, also find us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show, and you can find all our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. So from Nick Cheney to Sonigan, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to this 51st episode of Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you next time. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>